and a really, really warm welcome to you all to St. Paul's this evening. It's great to see so many of you here and fantastic to see a queue, the likes of which I only normally see on Christmas Eve, going all the way around the cathedral. Welcome. Uh, my name is Mark Oakley, and it is my pleasure this evening to introduce our speakers to you in just a moment. But for those of you who've not been to one of our events here before, let me just quickly explain how it works. In a moment, Melvin Bragg and Jane Williams will explore the work of William Tyndall, what fired his soul, and what difference he has made to our national and our spiritual lives. Melvin will look at how William Tyndall's passion to see everyone able to read the Bible in their own words led to his death and at the same time profoundly changed freedom of thought, religion and the church forever. Tyndall being also one of the co-creators of modern English language. Jane will then respond theologically as to the spiritual significance of being able to read the Bible for ourselves. And of course, we're meeting in this anniversary year of Luther, an influence on Tyndall, and of course, one of the great translators of the Bible into German. If you have a question through the evening, please write it on the back of your program and then hold it up to be collected at any point. We won't think you need the toilet. It's okay. Please don't be bashful. Just hold it up and then we collect all the questions in until around 7.40. Please keep your questions brief, and especially all you GPs and clergy out there, please keep them legible. We're also taking questions via Twitter using the hashtag Tyndale. If you would like to send us your question through your mobile or tablet, just type in your question and include hashtag Tyndall, and we will find it. Your questions are then sent up to me here at the laptop, and then I will put them, as many as I can, to Melvin and Jane through the evening, and we'll end at 8 o'clock, and there's a bookstall here where you can buy the speaker's books, and they've very kindly said that they'll sign copies afterwards. Tonight also you have a chance to see one of the three surviving copies of Tyndall's New Testament, which is on display here under the dome. There are, of course, so few copies left because the Bishop of London sent out a prohibition, burning thousands of them in a grand gesture here at St. Paul's on the 27th of October, 1526. And before I get on my high horse about that, it was a canon of this cathedral who was responsible for planning Tyndale's eventual arrest in Antwerp. Of course, in spite of those efforts to hunt down and destroy the translation, this copy survived. And a very British orderly queue is going to be needed to see it this evening and we'll need to keep moving, but I hope you will take the chance to look at this small testament, small enough, of course, to be easily hidden, a testament you might well have been tortured 
or executed for if you possessed it. It is, for me, poignant and very moving to have it here next to us as we meet here this evening. So now, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you our speakers. Melvin Bragg is, of course, a writer and broadcaster who sits in the Lords, taken on by the BBC as a trainee shortly after completing a degree in modern history at the University of Oxford. He was running his own television arts programmes while still in his early 20s. He's perhaps best known for the programme The South Bank Show, which he fronted for 33 years. It had an enormous sweep covering everything you remember from classical opera to contemporary German art to Iggy Pop and Liza Minnelli. It changed arts broadcasting and it brought the arts to new audiences all over the country. And my guess is I'm not the only person here who's humming the theme tune in my head right now. He now, of course, hosts Radio 4's In Our Time, managing academics and subjects of huge diversity and difficulty, offering us on a Thursday morning in our own homes a perfect encapsulation of the excitement and oddity of academic life without us having to have an essay crisis. He is one of the great and most democratic public service broadcasters of our times, and I, amongst so many, I'm grateful for what he's brought to our cultural life. Jane Williams is assistant dean and lecturer in systematic theology at St. Melitus College, where she brings the wonders of thinking about God and loving God with our minds to clergy in training, and so we hope via them to all of us a great, great vocation. She is the author of numerous academic and popular works of theology, including Perfect Freedom and the rather brilliant and concise Why Did Jesus Have to Die? She is quite simply a wonderful theologian, bringing to her academic life and teaching not only a mind, but a breadth and depth of human understanding, and again, a deep cultural interest. All this and also a very close up, one might even say gory, insider knowledge of the weirdness and wonder of the established Church of England. Amazing. We're really delighted that she's come to talk to us about the importance of us having the Bible in our own hands and language and what that means. So, as Stephen Fry might say, both our speakers this evening are veritable autumn plums in the orchard of delight and excellence. Or perhaps that sounds a little bit more like Boris Johnson, but <laughs> it's a great, great privilege to have them both here with us. And would you please join me now in welcoming both our speakers. Thank you very much for that uh, very lavish introduction. Um, I hope you can hear at the back, I hope you can hear at the front. But if any of you can't hear, would you let me know, because I'll pitch my voice up or make something happen to the microphone. I'm delighted to be in St. Paul's, but full of trepidation, who wouldn't be uh, preaching or, sorry, <laughs> talking here. There we are. Um, 
Right. Outside the old St. Paul's on this site in 1526, that's not very long ago, if you remember Jesus died at 33, that's say three lives a century, that's 500 years, that's only 15 lifetimes ago. In 1526, 3,000 copies of the New Testament in the English language were burned over three days. They'd been bought for this biblical inferno by the Bishop of London himself. The aim was to censor, in his own way, the translation of the scriptures into English. The translation was by William Tyndall, whose words would sweep Protestantism and the English language around the globe over the next 500 years. Three or four, three or four years after the burning of those 3,000 books, they began the burning of people who had bought or read or even spoken about this New Testament in English. London, under Henry VIII, became a foul nest of spies and informers and a furnace of repression, a citadel of torture. In 1517, Luther in Germany had set off a volcanic revolution. He challenged the Pope, the entire structure of the dominating Roman Catholic Church and thereby the whole system of rule at that time, with the church and state being different sides of the same coin. He challenged the monopoly of Latin as the word of God. He wrote his own Bible in German. English was one of the only, in fact, I think the only great European country which did not have its own language spoken in the Bible. William Tyndall became the English champion of the movement, the Protestant movement, this was to change this country root and branch. As England's Protestant figurehead, he, were, he became known as the most dangerous man in England, even though he lived almost all his adult life away from this country. Quite simply, quite determinedly, and unrelentingly, Tyndall wanted the word of God in the language of the people, and he succeeded in that. But there was more. As an, as an unintended consequence of his writing, his style, and his vocabulary, he had a greater influence on the English language, this is said by linguistic historians, a greater influence on the English language than anyone, including Shakespeare. His words and phrases, not only his words and his thoughts and his phrases, phrases, not only enrich and remodel our literature, but enabled in time the emergence of democracy in the Anglo-Saxon world and advanced the cause of women and philanthropy, particularly in the 19th century. Tyndall profoundly believed that once the people of England heard the scriptures in their own tongue, then the duty to believe, the ancient barnacled duty to believe, would be superseded by the liberty to think. And in the iron innocence of his faith, he was convinced that all then would be well. What more? could the people want. He was a genius of translation, just as Shakespeare was a genius of the imagination. On those two, we are fortunate to have our language built. He spent the greater part of his allied life in exile. He was hunted, Tyndall, by three separate intelligence networks. His friends and followers were murdered. He himself was finally dungeoned for 16 months and burned to death for his vision of what the Bible could bring 
to this country in its own language. He was born in a wealth, Tyndall was born in a wealthy family in the West Country. Their money came from the wool trade, then our greatest cash crop. He went to Magdalen College School in Oxford when he was 12. Then he transferred to the university and received an MA when he was 21. In that part of the West Country, there was, there was great doubt about the truth and strength and purity of the Catholic Church. Let me give you an example about, a little example about how this was expressed. At about the time, there's a report from Gloucestershire. Uh, under Bishop Hooper, it found indulgence, sorry, negligence and ungodly behavior of the monasteries of Gloucestershire, inhospitable, non-resident, inefficient, drunken, drunken and evil living was found in every deanery. Furthermore, at Wooden under Edge alone, it was recorded that nine clergy did not know how many commandments there were, 33 did not know where they appeared in the Bible, 168 could not, this is a small town, Wooden under Edge, isn't it? 168 could not repeat them, 39 did not know where, a Lord, where the Lord's Prayer appeared in the Bible, 34 didn't know the author and were able, unable to recite it. There was much work to be done, but people had to hold their counsel. We had the great sacred text, the 301, 381 translation by Jerome of the Bible into Latin, became known as the Vulgate, which was a, very, a sacred text, not especially in this country at the time, not to be interfered with one syllable. He went to school, when he went to school in Oxford, the work was routine, it toughened him up for hard work. He started at 6 a.m. and went on to late in the afternoon. He complained there was far too much Latin, far too much of the classics, although he became brilliant in Cicero and Ovid and Virgil and Aesop. Uh, in the end, he knew eight languages, or he mastered eight languages, uh, but he wanted there to be more study of the scriptures. For Tyndall, it was always the scriptures. As a boy, he'd come across Athelstan, one of the kings, English kings in the ninth century, one of the Saxon kings, who'd set out to translate some of the Bible into English. And as a boy, he'd been inspired by it. And it's remarkable. How many people who end up with the word genius attached to them with some cause started when they were very young, as if they wouldn't wait to get going. Newton with his prism at the fair, the Brontes writing their stories in those little books. And it was Tyndall's passion for Athelstan, this king who wanted to translate the Bible, and so did he. In Oxford, got a good education, then he went to Cambridge and encountered the influence of the great Rotterdam scholar Erasmus, the humanist who believed in translating the Bible into English, uh, as it was in most of the other uh, European tongues. But more importantly, more importantly, he said that to truly understand the meaning of the Gospels, you did not use the Vulgate, you did not use the Latin, you had to go back to the Greek in which it was originally written. You had to, if you went back to the original Greek, you were in touch with the Syriac, and, which, and you had the heart of the matter. This, for Tyndall, was completely a, Euro a eureka moment. And it changed his life, and instantly he set himself to learn Greek, which he mastered. He, as I said, he ended up learning many languages. One was Greek, very important to him, another was to be Hebrew. But the major influence in the time, as has been mentioned, was Luther, whose was a vol volcanic influence. Very difficult to find a comparison, even in Trotsky and Stalin, very difficult. Those 99 theses pinned to the church door changed church and state in Europe forevermore, a lasting change. 
Luther set up revolutions and mass uprisings across, let's call it Europe, which terrified the rulers, not least Henry VIII and his chancellor, Cardinal Wolseley. Wolseley bought Luther's books and burnt them, again, outside there, in the fine Tudor tradition of censorship, which is to burn your opposition. Tyndall translated Greek into English, and so he was in danger. This was against the law. If caught, he would have been at the very least stripped of his priesthood. He would perhaps have been tortured, very quite likely, and even worse. So he was in danger from that. He was also in danger because he was known as a fiery young preacher. We miss that out sometimes. We have the sentences that he was a man of unspotted character, that he was a very gentle man. And that all seems to be true. But he went out there in the open air, as the Celtic monks had done, as John Ball had done, and the Methodists, as the Methodists were later to do, and under what they saw as a, directly, a direct guide to heaven, they preached to the people. And he preached down in the West Country. And it was the West Country where he went to work after Cambridge to be a tutor to give him some, some time and some privacy and some secrecy, probably, to get on with translating the Bible into Greek. There are many incidents reported there. One stands out. One, I think, is seminal, and it's well recorded. At, dinner, at a dinner given by his patron one night, there were many bishops and divines and so on there, and they were fed up with Tyndall. There was this 23-year-old young boy who contradicted all their arguments, who kept opening the Bible and saying, prove it, prove it, prove it, and none knew the scriptures as well as he did. So young master Tyndall became wearisome. That was the phrase. And one evening, one of the bishops said, were I to have to decide between the laws of the Pope and the laws of God, I would choose the laws of the Pope. And Tyndall went incandescent, it is reported. And then he retorted, ere long, I will teach a plowboy to know the scriptures better than me. And that, I see, is his guiding steer. The choice of the plowboy was brilliant. First of all, the connection with the apostles working on the land, people who just did the ordinary work of life. But secondly, and most vitally, the plowboy was illiterate. And Tyndall, from the beginning, wrote the Bible to be read aloud so that everyone could have access to it. He cultivated monosyllables. He used local phrases to set the New Testament free from the polysyllabic authoritarian monopoly of Latin. But he also opened it up to rhythms which became deeply stratified in English prose and in English poetry. Here's just the smallest touch. Seeing the crowd, he went, up into a, he went up onto a mountain. Seeing the crowd, he went up onto the mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Thus began, arguably, I think, the greatest radical oration in Western history. He also wrote in his prose, seeking out the monosyllables, seeking from common speech, in such what became a modern style, founded on this basic English, that it became one of the greatest cultural artifacts of our history. But his reputation was tainted after that remark at the dinner. He was hauled into court in the West Country. He was quoted, to quote him, treated worse than a dog. Only his vast knowledge of the scriptures got him off. 
but he was a marked man. He left the West Country, came to London, full of opportunities for clergy. His reputation as a translator already known. His reputation as a Greek scholar already known. He couldn't get a job anywhere. Uh, Bishop Tunstall, Bishop of London, was a good, decent enough man. You wouldn't give him any occupation whatsoever. Turn him away and turn him away. Tyndall preached in various places, looked around, but it was hopeless, and he knew it was hopeless, and he was completing his Greek, he was completing his translation, and what was he to do with it? It could not get printed in this city, but overseas, on Europe, there are at least 70 printing presses, and so he risked everything. He must have got some money from his family, who steadily, in small ways, supported him. He sailed down the Thames, accompanied by nothing but his unconquerable mind, and went to Germany looking for a printer for what would be his New Testament. And at the same time, he, re he rarefied his own thoughts, which are very like those of Luther, except he, did them, he pushed them a little further. Quite simply, if it was not in the Bible, it was not Christian. The Pope was not in the Bible. Pilgrimage was not in the Bible. Penitence was not in the Bible. Purgatory was not in the Bible. On and on it went. A, a vastly wealthy church was not in the Bible. And so they had, to be, they had to be ignored. They had to be done away with. That was not what Jesus was preaching. And the only thing that mattered was to get the preaching of Jesus tr properly translated because the only real thing that mattered was to save souls. It was to save the souls of people. And in that sense, they had to understand what, what, was, in, what was before them. Once their souls were saved, their mission on earth was completed. And he did this by the translation from the Greek, but also in subtle yet radical ways, quite brilliantly quiet, radical ways. For instance, in, from the Latin Vulgate, the word translated, for ch translated as church. In Greek, ecclesia, Tyndall translated as congregation. Not a church, not a place, not a building block in an edifice which stretched back to Rome, a congregation, a number of people assembled together freely to discuss with one another. That set his opponents fury to fury. And another small example. There's a translation of a word into priest. He didn't want that. He took the Greek word and he translated it into elder. There was only one priest. There was only one intermediary between those seeking grace and God, and that was Jesus Christ. Priests were redundant. You can imagine. All that was redundant. He was pulling down the wealthiest establishment in the whole of Europe by far, the most dug in, the most interconnected with armies and alliances and so on, all was being pulled down in the interests of getting at the word. And he mustn't be thought of as a quiet man who buried himself in a printing press and got on with doing the translation. There was that aspect. But there's also something utterly fearless about him. That's just not words, it's proved again and again. When the first English translation was being done in Cologne, there was, some, there was an Englishman making a book of his own in Cologne, translating a, printing a book of his own. He squealed to the local authorities, who squealed to Henry VIII, who sent his intelligence back, and troops went in to smash the, pre the press where Tyndall was printing his New Testament. Tyndall, Tyndall got wind of it, somehow or other outwitted the people who came in, dashed through the town, took enough with him to start again, got onto a boat on the Rhine and sailed away from Cologne up to Wittenberg, up to, up to Worms. And again, at one stage, he was shipwrecked. 
He lost everything in the shipwreck, came back and started again. He was a bold and fearless man. He would do anything to fulfill what he saw, his mission. So the books came in 1525, 26 to London. Uh, they were sent over. Many books had come from the Netherlands. It was not a new thing. And at first, they were just books. And then at the first thousand came across without much fuss. Then a few days later, people realized what had hit them. Tyndall was the English Luther. Tyndall was the enemy among them. The fact that he was over the sea made him even more and more and more of a monster. Tyndall was the man they had to get. And they got him in their usual way. First of all, they burnt the books. They burnt the 3,000 books. Then they burned other books. Then they arrested anybody who knew Tyndall, who'd been at college with Tyndall, who admitted to reading Tyndall, who made a reference to Tyndall. That slight was enough. That slight relationship was enough for them to be arrested and at least tortured uh, and put in the tower and so on. Public humiliations, threats, and eventually, of course, after you burn the books, you burn the people. And the smell of burning flesh began to pollute the skies of this city. Henry VIII had declared it had been made the defender of the faith. And he wanted to prove himself the most determined of the Catholic defenders across Europe, as determined as the Pope. And even though Thomas Cromwell and Anne Boleyn wanted to intervene for Tyndall, and even though Tyndall gave them a chance by a book called uh, On the Obedience of Kings, he withdrew that, he withdrew the arguments then, put in more subtle arguments, he didn't have a chance. Henry VIII was driving it forward. And then what happened in this city, and again, it's not all that long ago. What happened in this city, which we like to think happened in other places, what happened here, was a sort of mass hysteria. Charles Lamb later called it a malice. It gripped the city. To give an example that might surprise you, most unexpectedly, one of the leaders for a part of the time was Sir Thomas, later St. Thomas Moore. The king ordered him to discredit and destroy Tyndall. And he set out to do so. His views on Tyndall were nothing short. He'd written Utopia. This is about the apocalypse. This is what he wrote. If Tyndall's testament be taken up, then shall false heresies be preached. Then shall the sacrament be set at naught. Then shall Almighty God be displeased. Then shall he withdraw his grace and let all run to ruin. Then will rise up rifling and robbery, murder and mischief and plain insurrection. Then all laws be laughed to scorn. Tyndall replied to him in a letter exchange of 750,000 words. And on Thomas Moore's side, the level of scotology is unbelievable, not to be spoken here in this building or, frankly, anywhere else. So that was, that was Moore's point of view. If Tyndall's views were taken on board, there would be Armageddon beside the Thames. It's said that in, by Fox that in his Chelsea gardens, Thomas Moore had a tree called the Tree of Truth to which he lashed people, put people who he thought uh, had something to do with Protestantism and himself whipped them took them, to the, took them to the tower, saw them tortured and lamed, and then followed them to Smithfield to see them burned. Tyndall replied to all Moore's charges. His essays now took the part of his preaching, but there was nothing much he could do. He was over there. If he came back, it would have been instantly burnt, but over there, there was still work to do, and he started 
to learn Hebrew, which he did, learned it on his own, so that he could translate the Old Testament again from the Hebrew, instead of from a ragtag and bobtail translating, translation of the Latin. He rejoiced in the compatibility between the Hebrew and Old English. He found that Hebrew helped him far more than Latin had ever done. He found words and forms of words which slotted straight into Old English, into Germanic English, 5th century English, which are the still the basis of our language. And those two, plus his determination to bring in commonplace words, I think are what give his later work such power and such sellability and such lastingness. They were still trying to catch him. He wandered around the street. He stayed in the wall house, connections with the wall, 5,000 strong wall house. It's our biggest industry over there. He was hidden in and out of the wall house. There was no picture of him. Nobody knew what he looked like. He was just another scholar with a long black gown. Antwerp was full of them. And how did you catch him? Well, they didn't. He was clever. He slipped. He changed lodgings. This, that, and the other. A diplomat was sent, a man called Stephen Vaughan, a very sympathetic man who sought out and found connections with Tyndall and persuaded them that he had come from Henry VIII. Now, Tyndall believed in kings. Kings were in the Bible. His essay on the disobedience, on the obedience of kings, uh, Henry VIII said, this is a book that all kings should read. Uh, he found out where Tyndall was, and they met in the woods. When I went to film there, we met in the, in the similar woods, as it were, uh, nearby, and told him the king wanted him back. And Tyndall knew what that would mean. It would mean that he would be tried, found guilty of heresy, and murdered. So he played his time. But he was very... And from the... They're worth reading those letters of Bourne. They're brilliantly written. They're brilliant diplomatic letters. And they were trained in memory, those people. Uh, memory was a big muscle that they were brought up, brought up with. And Tyndall's frailty, his genuineness, his sorrow at missing his country, and his friends and not hearing his language enough. That he went back. And then Vaughan came back again. And with an offer from the king, he could come back. He would put him on the council, the king said wildly, Henry VIII. He just had to get him back. There was somebody who wrote, I think Venetian ambassador said, the king of England doth want Tyndall in his country before he writes any more harmful material, harmful pamphlets, harmful, anything more harmful about him. They were desperate to get him. Tyndall glided away back into the woods, went into Antwerp by another gate and was not found. The third time Bourne came to him, he came to him with an extraordinary letter, which is a rejection letter, except for a 138-word postscript written by Thomas Cromwell, who contradicted everything that Henry VIII had said. And he said, please come. We want you back. I, the king, the king will forgive you. He will take you on. He believes in you now. He's now, as a king, is beginning to be a Protestant. And Tyndall then said, it's better to read it, but Tyndall said yes, he would come back. And Vaughan was, couldn't believe it. And then Tyndall said, but there's one thing. There has to be a translation of the Bible into English. It needn't be mine. It needn't be ornate. There's got to be some translation of the Bible into the English language before I come back. Then I will come back. Vaughan took that uh, message back to the court and Tyndall never heard from him again. He was finally betrayed. He was betrayed by another Oxford man. It's very much an Oxford story, and some of it does Oxford not much credit at all. This was a younger man, Henry Phillips, who came from the West Country like Tyndall, who was very papist, very anti-Protestant, 
a swindler, he cheated his own father, a gambler, utterly dissolute, dreadful person who saw that he could make a fortune, which he did, if he were the man who got them to Tyndall. And he worked through the court of the Holy Roman Emperor, and he got the Procurer General on his side. There was a big bounty on Tyndall's head and a big m m bounty of money for the Procurer General if he found him. Phillips ingratiated himself, somehow got into the wall house, and he, he pointed, he was the Judas. I don't really like to speak about Phillips. He's such a disgusting, dreadful, trivial, second-rate person. Just think about what happened if Tyndall had lived. He'd have got to the Psalms, he'd have translated the Psalms. Just think what that would have been. Anyway, the, there was a tunnel outside the wall house. Phillips was tall. Tyndall was short. Phillips sent Tyndall ahead of him. I've been down that place. Sent ahead of him. And as they came out, Phillips, and this is the word, fingered Tyndall. Maybe that's where their word came from. The Swiss guards came out and took him. And one of them said, we pitied him in his simplicity. They took him to a medieval castle which had a deep dungeon and a billboard near Brussels and he was there for the last 16 months of his life. In 1536 he was degraded, that is to say his, his, his priest's robes were taken off, the chalice was given to him then taken away from him, he was no longer a priest uh, and then a few days later he was taken to the stake. But before then he sent a letter to the men who imprisoned him and it's a marvelous letter. I'm only time to say a few words from it. He was obviously in rags, literally in rags. He hadn't a hat, he was cold. I dodged you in three or four, it's his northern Europe in winter. Uh, he wanted, he asked for if he could have a candle from his own possessions. Can I have a candle, could you send me another shirt and so on. And, I, and, and then this is how he ended it. But first of all, I beg and beseech your clemency is the man he's writing to, that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary so that I may pass the time in that study. In return, may you obtain what you most desire, so only that it be the salvation of your soul. There was no reply. He's taken out. The crowds were there. He was by that time, what well, had been for a while, an enormous celebrity. Who was this man, this Tyndall? This wigwam was built. Loose gunpowder was thrown on it to make it burn faster. He was put on, supposedly strangled just before he was burned. And his last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. He said, how can the king be so unkind as to stop his people reading the work of God? Before Tyndall's death, Henry had become a Protestant. Before Tyndall's death, Henry had started publishing asked for books in the English, the Bible in the English language. He never asked Tyndall. He would never listen to Tyndall, have Tyndall's name spoken again. Tyndall published his work anonymously. And so his assistants, Coverdale, and then Matthew, it's a false name, Matthew, others copied, plagiarized, ripped off him for Bible after Bible after Bible in the 16th century, right up to St. James Bible. And people said, when he came in the 19th century, Tyndall, who is this Tyndall? Nobody knew who he was. He'd been erupt out of history until some scholars got to work and looked at it. And his most important contribution, vital contribution, I think, for all sorts of, if you're a Protestant, absolutely vital. If you're interested in our language, vital. 
if you're interested in democracy, because it's vital. The most important thing was in the King James Bible, his contribution is unbelievable. In the New Testament of the King James Bible, supposedly put together by these 50 scholars chosen by James, over 93% is by William Tyndall. And in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, uh, which he just had time to do before he was, before he was captured, at over 85%. We now know that through the century, through others, his work influenced, for instance, Shakespeare. And from Shakespeare to Donne, and, and right through, it influenced literature right up to Tony Morrison these days. Influenced Shakespeare. A.L. Rouse says he quotes from 42 books in, uh, in Tyndall, Shakespeare does. Here's a couple of specific instances. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. That's in Matthew. In Hamlet, there is a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If you've been now, it is not to come. If you've been not to come, it will be now. And he has fun with Midsummer Night's Dream. In Corinthians, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And in the Midsummer Night's Dream, the eye of man hath not heard, the ear of man hath not seen. Man's hand is not able to taste. He's turned to conceive, nor his heart to report what my dream was. And on it goes. I think it's worthwhile ending with a few of his words. There are hundreds of them. And I bet, I'm not, not in a church, I can't bet a cathedral, can't bet at all. But I would guess that today, most of you have used or thought of some, even of this small selection, words invented for the English language or taken from the country, or taken from the community by Tyndall. Cast the first stone, the salt of the earth, fight the good fight, monosyllable, monosyllable, monosyllable. Sick unto death, broken-hearted, clear-eyed, the powers that be, the fat of the land, let there be light, and on we go. And I know there's a Bible here, a Tyndall Bible here, but it's interesting that there is only one totally complete Bible anywhere, and I went to see it, it's in Stuttgart, in, the Bible, in a Bible cask in Stuttgart, which is enormous. Bibles, 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 Bibles. And they brought it to me, and it's that big. And there was a sort of sense of disappointment. You mean it's only that big? And it's that plain? And then you realize that once again, the quiet genius has struck, because that can be slipped into any pocket, hidden in the folds of any clothes, passed from person to person, doesn't have to be publicly put on a pedestal or whatever it is, or a lectern. It can go the rounds through to the people, through the people. And from there grew everything that accrued to our language. One of the words he invented was beautiful. And it's a beautiful thing, I think, here in St. Paul's, so near the site where a powerful and cruel state tried to rub out his language, our language, which he heightened and deepened, and to which he'd given such a long life and a, such a fruitful life. But above all, what mattered to him was that he found words so that everyone could equally share truly in the faith. And that's what we're celebrating, this great, modest, transforming genius who gave those words to us, to everyone, and sacrificed his own life for it so that we could hear and read in our own tongue the words that he truly believed.
came from God. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Melvin. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? And there's something incredibly powerful about the fact that one of those Bibles is sitting in the corner. You can almost feel the reverberations coming from it, the history that it's holding. Um, I want just very briefly to pick up on two areas uh, and reflect on them. Uh, the first, uh, obviously, is the Bible. And the second is this question of dying for your faith. Um, the Bible is part of what stops us from making God in our own image. The Bible faces us with the reality that we're part of something much bigger than our individual story. Um, also, we get that sense when we're reading the Bible that it's not exactly our own idea. How do we get this particular collection of books rather than the many other books uh, that were around during the process in which the Bible comes into a consolidated canon? Um, if you read the Hebrew Scriptures, you know that it speak, they speak of other collections of prophecies and histories that are now lost to us. And in the first couple of Christian centuries, there were other sources that were widely read, but for some reason don't make it into what we think of as the Bible. One of the major uh, reformed theologians of the last century speaks of the Bible having imposed itself on us. Not exactly our choice, but imposed on us. Um, and I think the theology of this is that uh, importantly, we do not pick and choose what will be constitutive of our faith. Instead, our faith constitutes us, making us part of this much bigger narrative, the one that starts with the creation of the world and ends with its fulfillment, Genesis to Revelation, and in the meantime, draws us into the company of people from all times and all places. I can't help noticing that I could be describing either the church or the Bible in that sentence, and I want to say something about how those two interact, these two great gifts that keep us truthful. One of the things that comes so powerfully out of um, Melvin's telling of Tyndale's uh, story is that Tyndale and all other translators of the Bible um, show us something of the sheer attention and love called out by faith. Melvin, I think you mentioned that we don't even know how Tyndale learnt Hebrew. He just seems to have taught it himself, Hebrew, as he sort of rolled around Europe uh, with never a penny to rub together, but somehow learnt enough Hebrew to start translating the Old Testament. Um, that kind of love and attention mean that it matters that the words are right. But I think it also shows us something of the Christian theology of human and divine interaction. The Bible is gift, it comes to us, but it's also ours to work at. For example, it can be translated, that's the whole story that we're looking at, it can be translated into all the different languages in the world without fear of losing its reality because it's a witness to the reality of God rather than being that reality itself. If you go into a theological library, there are shelves and shelves and shelves of commentaries 
Uh, if you go to any Christian church anywhere around the world on any Sunday, there will be sermons after sermons after sermons. Um, probably with an element of repetition in some of them, dare we say. But also this element of constant newness. As an expositor of the Bible myself, I'm constantly amazed that you can open the same text week after week and find something that I you were pretty sure words wasn't there last time you looked. There's something new that comes out as each person brings something of themselves to the task of reading and interpreting the Bible. And so the Bible story gets richer and richer and richer as more and more people are come, come to be part of that story. We become part of the story that makes us. It's like a kind of regular feeding of the 5,000 where one passage of scripture can be taken and blessed and feed hearts and minds over and over. But it does have obvious dangers. And they were the kind of dangers that worried some of Tyndale's opponents, notably Thomas More, as Melvin's been describing to us. Um, this gift of scripture put into every person's hands is a glorious gift, but it is dangerous. Um, it uh, enables each person to interact and begin to form their own faith. Uh, it's an unusual attitude to authority and begins definitely to change the understanding uh, of how authority operates in church and in state. Um, but I'm not entirely sure that that's quite what Tyndale and other early translators intended. Um, Tyndale, uh, as Melvin has highlighted for us, puts an enormous amount of emphasis on the congregation. Um, he trusts uh, the authority of the congregation. Um, Tyndale and those early translators who worked so hard to get the Bible into all of our hands probably couldn't imagine the way that we use it now when we sit on our own reading the bits that we like best and deciding for ourselves what it all means. Remember, uh, in Tyndale's day, very few people could read fluently. Printing was, its, when it was in its infancy and hadn't yet spawned the literate world that is part of the legacy of Bible translating and printing. Bible and printing grow a reading world. So Tyndale may well have been imagining faithful people reading scripture, but he was almost certainly envisaging them doing that together. God's people and God's book in connection. Not the plowboy out in the field on his own, but the authority of the congregation. Certainly Cranmer, the great architect of English Christianity, assumed that most people would gain access to the life-giving word through liturgy, through hearing it read and expounded in the congregation, the congregation of the faithful. It's easy to romanticize the Bible as the great tool in the hands of the laity, freeing them from dependence on the clergy to mediate their relationship with God. Um, I certainly, as a layperson myself, have found that um, an important part of my faith to be able to access scripture directly. Even when you can't join with the congregation, you can open your Bible and be part of the company of the faithful. But I think that's part of the point, that the Bible, uh, like the church, pulls you into this company of people that are not your own choice, not necessarily your own mindset. The Bible refuses to allow faith to become a club or an individual pastime. 
perhaps those of us who are regular Bible users need to ensure that we use it responsibly, honoring those like Tyndale who sacrificed so much to put it into our hands. And that sacrifice is the other thing that I want very briefly to touch on. Was it worth it? Are there things worth dying for? Is being prepared to die for something on a kind of continuous line that might end in being prepared to kill for something? It's hard to overestimate the impact of having the Bible in our own language. But history suggests that it would have happened even if Tyndale had given up when it got dangerous. But the problem is that Tyndale lived that side of history, not this. He had no way of knowing when he started that others would pick up his work and that even as he went to his death for his endeavors, the Bible in English was becoming acceptable. He could hardly have imagined our world where the Bible is so readily available in every language and format that mostly we take no notice of it at all. There surely must be things of such value to us and to our world that we can't afford to leave it to chance and hope that all will be well if we don't pay too high a price ourselves. Tyndale believed, and I want to say rightly, that the Bible is too important to be in the hands of only a few, and he was prepared to die for that truth. Would he have killed others to impose it? I don't think he would. Um, Melvin will know better, having spent so much longer in Tyndale's company. I think that dying for what you believe and killing for what you believe are not much of a muchness. And I think that on the basis of the, w of the way of Jesus Christ. Christians have sadly and painfully often not made the connection with the fact that Jesus chose to die but did not choose to impose his will by force. We all know the sorry history of Christian tyranny. But there is also that profound saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's a statement of Christology. It's a statement about Jesus Christ, the truth revealed. Whereas the statement might is right is not Christology. That's not about Jesus Christ, God revealed. There must be some things worth dying for. Some things so constitutive of what we are and what we long for the world to be that if we forswear them, we forswear all that makes life worth living. Tyndale's belief that we all need to be able to access the Bible made Tyndale who he was. Without that belief, there is no Tyndale. We would not be telling his story hundreds of years later. So I suppose another part of Tyndale's challenge to us is what would we die for? And then the most basic challenge, this book that he died for. Does it matter enough? I'll let you ask those questions and hope that Mark will answer them.
Uh, so now's your chance. If you haven't already and you're bursting with a question, please do hold it up and it will get collected and then it will pop up in front of me and I hope that I'll be able to get through quite a lot of your questions. Thank you to those of you who've started already because there are quite a few questions here. Um, I just want to, to start with one of them, which I think is um, a nice way to launch. Uh, I was struck at the end when, when you were talking about his death because accounts, uh, Melvin, don't they, they say that although they strangled Tyndale before they burned him, actually they didn't complete the job and he sort of came to as the flames got near, but that actually he remained completely silent through the actual death. And it's slightly haunting that somebody who'd spent his whole life focused around words and language and proclamation, uh, actually when it came to suffering for them, stopped them all. Um, the question here is, Tyndale's translation of the Bible, you said, replaced the duty to believe with the liberty to think. Have we forgotten this, asks the questioner. Would you like to start, Jane, on that? It's a very interesting question. Um, I mean, I would like to answer uh, no. I don't think we have forgotten that. Um, and I think uh, that what I'm suggesting, this great um, endeavor of reading the Bible together in the congregation, uh, is part of helping us go on thinking. Um, thinking is a very much a corporate exercise. We need to do it together. I mean, sometimes those, somebody like Brian McLaren would say that too often at the moment you either have uh, what he calls ignorance on fire or intelligence on ice. <laughs> and actually, uh, you're looking for people who are passionate about the commitment, but passionate too about the questioning. Um, and that liberty to think sometimes is seen as an enemy within the church. Is that... I mean, it's very uncomfortable, clearly. Um, and I, I think it's, um, obviously most people who run churches would prefer people just to do as they were told, I mm. imagine. It does make life so much simpler. Um, but uh, the liberty to think is also the liberty to pray, the liberty mm. to engage, the liberty to um, serve. Um, and you, it's the liberty to form ourselves as increasingly Christ-like people in company, I don't think there's any getting round that liberty to think. I think, as, um, I'm sure Melvin would want to come on, in on this, but I, I mean, I think there is always a strand in any institutional setting, not just in faith settings, um, of people who would rather be told what to do than have to take responsibility and think for themselves. Uh, and we see that in Christianity, but as I say, we see it in politics, we see it yeah, all over the place. Um, and so uh, maybe Tyndale is one of the great examples of making us realize that uh, if we don't take responsibility for our world, we can't complain when it's not the way we want it. The duty to believe and the liberty to think. Have we forgot that? Well, I was quite pleased with that, really. Um, <laughs> I think there was a duty to believe, and there is in most religions for most of the time. Your duty is to believe what you're told by those in charge. And that still goes on throughout the world, as we all know. One of the things that the Reformation did in Europe and through Tyndall in this country was to basically put that to one side and say it was more important 
to understand, and in that understanding, be able to make up your own mind. And obviously, Tyndall thought that this would mean that your own mind would be made up to worship God. James quite right, you let the genie out of the bottle. But I want the genie to be let out of the bottle. And there's mostly good come from it. I can't think of much bad that's come from it. Because from the time of Tyndall's translation in this country, and Luther in Germany and so on, particularly in this country, the Bible turned into a political book. People saw in the Bible, gave them examples of, I can do that because it has been done. I can rebel here because it has been done. I can think these thoughts because they're in the Bible. It was a huge enabling document for people to change the way they lived, to think in terms of being, of being blessed are the poor instead of blessed are the rich. It was in terms of um, thinking in the terms of congregation as a democracy rather than living in, a, in an autocracy. And so I think it was a major, major change. And to show how major it was, the Roman Catholic Church soon uh, cottoned onto it with the Counter-Reformation, and they accepted it too, because the Protestants had raced ahead so far in so many ways. So I do think it's a distinction, uh, uh, and I think, I think it's a useful one. Of course, other people can think differently. That's, that's fine, and uh, they may be right, they may be, but I don't think so. We see all around the world now where the duty to believe is taken people. The absolute duty to believe, if you do not believe, you will be destroyed. If you do not believe, you will be exiled from this state. You will be debilitated. And when we have liberty, well, of course, it comes with a thousand confusions. But those confusions can be fruitful, as we've seen, uh, can breed all sorts of uh, interesting and extensions to, to the mind and thought, can liberate us. It is a liberty, and I think the Bible was, in, uh, in its first stages, was a very great liberating book for many people. Uh, and it was for that reason that it was welcomed. And as for not being, the Bible not being, not really being for the plowboy, people, it's reported that when the book came, people would stay at church after, and read the Bible to scores and hundreds of people. They would read it aloud. They would do exactly what Tyndall intended them to do, read it aloud to the people who could not read for themselves. And soon this country was full of people who knew of chunks of the Bible by heart, although they couldn't read or could read only, only, only poorly, as it were. So it was, it's an, I, I, we haven't explored, well, because it's in time, it's just, uh, a tenth of the power of that. You could call it a document, you could call it a... Uh, a, a book of faith, which it is, it's these things and many others. But I do think the distinction is worth making, that people were released, were released from the bondage of having to believe or else, the or else took on a life of its own. And of, and of course, that word believe, of course, can be used in two ways in the Christian community. You can believe that, you know, I believe that God exists, or you can, I believe in God, like I trust yeah. in God, like I, I believe in my GP. <laughs> I think uh, it's a bit different from the GP. And, well, but that sense that it's not about I believe that X, but I trust in. And uh, over the centuries, that, that word belief has been used in various different ways. Yes, but I think that the liberty to think is the liberty to think for yourself, is the liberty to think against mm. other people's thoughts. Yeah. And that's the, the liberty to argue, the liberty to say, was, um, 
was Judas right? Well, of course, that's too easy. But was Judas right to argue about things? Henry VIII said some things which, in his rage, were true. One of the reasons he didn't want the Bible translated into English, he said, every potboy in the country mm. will come to know it as well as us. Well, he was right. Mm. They did. And that worried him. And, um, and of course, Tyndall actually wrote, I, I've been reading, as you can imagine, in preparation, and I, just to back you up here, the spiritual, he wrote, never leaveth searching till we come at the bottom, the pith, the quick, the marrow, and very cause why, and judgeth all thing, the sense of, of a sort of generous exploration into, into everything. But I think it, the, the temptation is to turn this into a story about individual heroic self-discovery. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's what Tyndale and the reformers thought. Mm. I, I don't think they thought that everybody was going to set out and make up their own faith. I think they thought this, the Bible is a richer way of working out how to think and what to believe. And that, that lovely picture that you just painted there, Melvin, of, of people uh, in, in their hundreds coming to hear the Bible read aloud, they came together to hear it read aloud. They probably talked about it. They didn't go away and think, okay, that means I can make up my mind about anything. Mm. Um, and I think that, that's part of the issue, is it's turned into a different kind of story uh, about the individual, which is not where it started. That doesn't mean, of course, where it starts and has to have to be where it ends, but I'd just like to explore where it started a bit. So you think it's a bit of a sort of post-enlightenment take on Tyndale a bit? I, that's my suspicion, mm -hmm. yes. Let's get on with another question, um, talking about being coerced into belief. There's a lot of questions coming in about Sir Thomas More, um, because Peter <laughs> if you read your Peter Ackroyd or if you yeah. go to see A Man for All Seasons, you might have a, a rather strong view in favour of Thomas More. Uh, but there are questions here, uh, should history review uh, and should history's judgment on Sir Thomas More change in his response to Tyndall? Shouldn't Tyndall be made the saint and not More, says somebody. Uh, tell me about your, your reading of More in all this. Um, would you like to? Well, Thomas More was one of the most extraordinary men of his age. Utopia in 1516, which was, let's call it Europe, a European success, and drew him to the attention of great scholars like Erasmus of Rotterdam, and he became part of that enchanted uh, pre-enlightenment, enlightenment circle. He was a brilliant man, a very ambitious man, uh, and he went, up, he went up the ladder. But it seems uh, proved, without much contested argument, that when he took over the job as it were, the mission that Henry V gave him to eradicate Tyndall, he had a sort of, I mean, to be kind, he went mad. Or he saw it through in a reasonable way which led him to do the most extraordinary, malicious, Charles Lamb's word, and terrible things. Um, now, he would have thought, we have to say, that look, he's got this man who's read Tyndall's books, who is therefore a Protestant, who is therefore against the king, who is therefore against the state, who will therefore bring down the state, and therefore it's my duty to get the truth out of him. And when I get the truth out of him, I can sentence him to death in the tower because we, he will have spoken the truth, he can repent his sins, and I'll have saved his soul in a way. There's that form of argument. The other is that it was a massive, massive deterrent. The show trials, the burnings, the laming in the tower with torture, this was a massive deterrent. 
Uh, and this, this descent into scatology, <coughs> I think that everybody in this cathedral would be astounded if I were to read four sentences. Um, I'm not going to, I don't, I'm not, but, but it's extraordinary that the way that that, he used that language to carry, to carry the reasons, to carry his thought. What did he need it for? He was a beautiful linguist. What did he want to do that for? Uh, I thought he wanted to do it because he's in a kind of frenzy. And then it's, it's tormented because, of course, he held to his principles at the end. And it's curious that he and Tyndall were executed, as it were, quite near in time to each other. He's a complicated man, but it, I think this, the, the exploration of Tyndall has um, seen him as a far less attractive man than most of us had seen him up to that day, simply because what is his reaction to Tyndall had simply not been taken into account at all, and now it has to be. Jane, are you the president of the Thomas More Society? <laughs> um, I probably was until reading Wolf Hall, um, which is where the, um, the, the anti-Thomas More movement sort of um, began for me. I certainly grew up with um, this, with the, what we've all been told all through history, this wonderfully witty, wise, charming, um, intelligent uh, uh, man with a, a lovely father. I mean, he, the, the family life, um, his daughters obviously idolized him. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and so trying to sort of blank out, as it were, that um, killing for the faith, which uh, I, as a theologian, want to say is never acceptable. It's never going to serve the purpose of a, of, of a God who chooses when he becomes human to die on the cross. I don't see how you can serve the purposes of that God by killing people for faith. Um, and, and, and there you see the real problem of, um, that, that Moore had of um, putting together a certain kind of authority um, that needed to be defended in that kind of way uh, with his faith. Um, and that's a very modern perspective to be able to bring. Mm. What it felt like to be more with all that wisdom and charm and, and yet certainty that you do need to kill heresy. I don't know, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? There's uh, about three questions that have come in that are in the same area, and they're quite personal questions. They're wanting to know, really, at the, at why you got interested in this, in this man and what effect he's had on your own lives. I mean, why should we gather here and, and, and remember him? Um, but also, a little bit closer to home, what got you first drawn to this? You know, what was the magnet? Well, I realized when the... Um, anniversary of the, uh, the 1611 Bible uh, came into sight, 2011, I realized that there would be either very few books or they would be dismissive of the Bible. And although I distanced myself from a very strong Christian upbringing, I still have uh, great uh, sympathies with a great deal of it. The, what I think the things that matter to it are strong with me. The things that I don't understand or can't credit, the resignation, the, the resurrection, miracles and that, they just have to be to one side. And I thought that this would be very unfair and thought, I wondered if I could track through the impact that the Bible had had on life around the world. And I wrote the book about the 
book that changed the world, which it did. And I found more and more and more ways in which it changed the world, changed societies, changed education, changed this, changed that, the democracy, and it really did. And not time to go into it, but it was a, an astonishing, an astonishing impact. It had more impact than any war. Astonishing impact. So I therefore got interested in the Bible, and I therefore got interested in Tyndall, which I didn't realize. Uh, Tyndall who had contributed so much to the Bible. And then I got fascinated by Tyndall. And he was in, I did a history of the English language, and he was in that, and something else was in that. And then I did a film with him with a very good te television producer called Anna Cox. We did a film of Tyndall and went in the places he'd been to in the Low Countries, and that was exciting. And then it was SPCK who asked me to do one of these brief lives. I wanted to write about Tyndall, but there was a magnificent book by Daniel, which um, I couldn't match, and I didn't have the intellectual resources or, or well, or any power to do it. But 25 to 30,000 words I thought I could manage. Um, and that's why I very much wanted to do it. And the more I studied him, because writing a short book is just as hard work as writing a long book, I can tell you. Um, I just, there, there was so much in him that was fine. And there's so much in it that was platted. He wasn't just a contrite, holy person. Not, nothing wrong with being a contrite, holy person. But he was this dynamic man who gone, went from printer to printer. He was determined to do things. He changed things. He took risks. He, he knew that his friends were being burnt and that. And he, was being, he wanted to come back and help them. But they were telling him, don't, because you'll just be burnt. You'll be no help to anybody. They put it in rather better prose than that. But that's what was going on. I became fascinated by him. Then gradually, when uh, people began to say, look, this man had greater influence on the language than Shakespeare, and we can prove it. So it went on from there, and I thought that we have been, we have been in, as it were, in our mythology of our island. We've missed this man, who might well be the greatest man, person, man, in our, in our story. So I was fascinated for historical reasons, for tribute to my past uh, religious reasons, for reasons of language, and reasons of the power of the book, the power of thought, and the cleverness of radicalism inside, inside the camouflage of something else. That use of the word ecclesia, to mean congregation and not church, was dynamic, and they didn't like it. They didn't like the fact that they got church back as soon as they could. They didn't like it because they knew what it meant. It meant all this wasn't, didn't matter very much. What mattered was the individual's direct relationship with God, justification through faith, through faith alone. So I became increasingly fascinated with him um, for those reasons and will continue to be. So I did the best I could in, with this book. And Jane, can I ask you about your response as a person of faith, what, how important he's been and, and what draws you to him? Um, I, mean, I suspect I'm one of the people that, that Melvin has been converting. Um, I didn't know much about Tyndale. Um, I, uh, uh, I knew him as part of the history of uh, translation of scripture. Um, I grew up in a missionary family in South yeah. India, um, and so it's part of my DNA that the, the Bible in all languages is part of how faith grows all over the world. I'm a passionate lover of the Bible. Um, I, I, I find it just endlessly draws me into something that reminds me I'm not the center of the universe, and that's not a bad thing. Um, but Tyndale himself, I mean, it, it's a fascinating, just a really fascinating story, which I did not know enough about. Um, uh, so thank you, Melvin.
He was a bit of a sort of, sort of 16th century James Bond in many ways. <laughs> I mean, he, he was very good at hiding. We still don't know where he was for a number of uh, occasions. I mean, Brilliant. Actually, we don't know what he looked like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, quite. Um, now, there are some more questions here, uh, and thank you for they're all coming in. Uh, a, 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 quite a gaggle of questions about what we can apply from our knowledge of Tyndale to the present church and to the... Uh, and if we focus that bunch of questions around the whole idea here of... He, he talked about the Word of God. This was, this was important. This was passionate for him because it was the Word of God. But of course, all these centuries later, uh, for many people, um, talk of the Bible or the Word of God, let's take Muir, the Orkney poet, who says, you know, for him, God is just three angry letters in a little black book. How, some people are asking, how can we almost defamiliarize people and refresh a new understanding of what Word of God might mean today? Because, frankly, this Bible has been abused as well as loved, and its words have been weaponized as well as proclaimed in, in charity. So how can we call people back to the Word of God today? Is that for me? I think it is. So kind, thank you. Um, Answers, please, on a postcard, <laughs> anybody else? I, I want to start with the point that I made um, earlier, which is that the word of God um, is Jesus, Jesus Christ, the, the Son. That is um, the word that God speaks. Um, and uh, uh, and, it, and the word of God, the Bible, bears witness to that ongoing um, presence and action of God in, in our world. Um, and so... Um, any divorce of uh, the Bible from uh, the lived word, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Spirit who's constantly with us, any divorce between what we read and how we live suggests we're not reading carefully. Uh, and that's, again, one of the things that is so clear in Tyndale. He expected it to be important enough to shape his whole life. Um, it's not just something that he did in his study and that he thought, okay, well, it's getting a bit dangerous, I'm going to put it away. It, it was so important that he had to live it. Um, and and I, I think that bring that back into connection, that the Bible is a, is, a, is a book that draws us into a way of living in the world as though God were real, as though God were here, as though we are going to be held to account for what we do to each other and to our world. Um, I think that might be a a good tribute to Tinder. And as a sympathetic observer to the church, what lessons, if any, would you say the current situation could learn from him? Well, there's an immense amount in Tyndall which is quite wonderful about the way we should behave, what we should aspire to, about wisdom about life and thoughtfulness and there's an overall idea in say the Sermon on the Mount which is not replicated anywhere really so all that is fine I think the great difficulty that a lot of people meet is connecting this with somebody or something called God 
it's that connection. And that's very, uh, some people do it and uh, one envies them, good. But some people can't or won't. And for them, that's the problem. The problem isn't what's in the book. The problem is that the book comes from some person, source, uh, in which they, to which they can't give authority or credibility. Mm. Mm. And can I just ask then, because uh, I'm just trying to get through as many of these <laughs> as I can, can I just ask Jane, the problem of, here's the Bible, it's in our hands, it's in my language, it's now, you know, the, the pot boy or the plow boy has, has got it. But then, you know, that's, an, that's only the beginning of the problem, isn't it? Because, you know, if you study scriptures, you know that there's a, you need to understand quite a lot of the, of the background in order to understand what's in front of you. And, you know, a lot of people would say that um, a text without context can easily become a pretext, <laughs> if we put it that way. Um, did Tyndale cause a lot of headaches by what he did, is what I'm saying. Is it, are we oversimplifying this? Oversimplifying? Well, uh, you've used the word romance. Yes. Um, but from the church point of view, there was a lot of resistance. Of course, the, the sadness is it was only three years later that Henry VIII was putting the Great Bible in English. In I was putting the Great Bible out when? It, in, when, all, when in all the churches. Before Tyndall Not, was murdered. Yes. Oh, right, yes. So, uh, nevertheless, it, it's caused problems. And do we forget that sometimes? Can we be a bit romantic about the Bible? Oh, I mean, I'm sure we can be romantic about anything if we try hard enough. But, I mean, the, the, it is nonetheless um, a necessary headache, I think. Uh -huh. um, I, 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 it's, it's just hard to imagine um, how faith could go on growing and spreading all over the world in lots and lots of different forms of the Christian church without this uh, glorious Bible. And I think... Um, I think, it, it, again, we're terrified, it seems to me, of, of um, variety um, and, uh, and sort of feel there should be just one right way of reading everything. Um, whereas actually, if it's a way of reading that it makes us live differently, um, think about, for example, the um, groups of women reading the Bible for the first time and realizing the trust that Jesus put in women uh, and realizing that actually they are called to be not just wives and mothers, but disciples mm. in the scriptures. That's, that's a life-transforming insight that, that goes on and causes other kinds of headaches. Um, and, uh, but, but probably necessary ones. Mm. Um, so I think um, one of the things that I find important about the Bible is a very fear-denying book. It sort of says, step into this big, dangerous, exciting world. Uh, in which um, you take for granted that God is, uh, that it is God's world, and see what it's like. It isn't, doesn't promise to be a simple hmm. way of living or a simple solution to things uh, or to offer just one answer to, to each person. Uh, and that spiritually difficulty could be more important than we first realize. Um, not only spirit, I mean, in every walk of life, difficulty is opportunity, isn't it? Yes, and potential change. Yes. I mean, wanting, to be, wanting everything to be simple is, is, um, is the coward's way. 
There's a question here for you, Melvin. Would the Tyndale translation ever have happened um, with Erasmus and Luther? So was Tyndale a product of his time, or was time a product of Tyndale? I mean, that was, I didn't get that. I think he was part of his context, yes. I mean, mm. he, <coughs> I think that, can I just go back to God for a second? Just, <laughs> I'll finish the last thing. Feel free. <laughs> is the, I do think that there is still a first cause. That's perhaps because I've been brought up in, with a causal education. I do think that there was a start to things, just like Newton did far, not mentally, mentally bigger brains than I ever had. I do think there's a cause to things. Now, whether we're going to find out over the next five or 600 years or two or 3,000 years, if that cause has a particular intelligence, it will be fascinating for those alive to follow it. And it may well be on what we call intelligence, because it, in many ways it is a very intelligent universe. At the same time, it doesn't seem to make a great deal of sense on certain other grounds. So there is a first cause. So the idea of going for the mystery of the first cause is something I'm completely, uh, I am fascinated by. And it's happened again and again since people worship the nearest mountain, the nearest tree, to people talking about the Big Bang, which I think is every, could be just at the end of something as much as the beginning of something. And nobody knows. And Martin Rees agrees with that, so I'm standing on reasonably firm, well, totally firm ground there. So I believe in that. Uh, but whether that can emanate what we think emanates from God in this extraordinary way that Christians have had and in different ways people have in different religions. I, I can't, I can't go, go along with that. Now I've forgotten the question you asked me. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll remind you, but as you speak, I'm reminded that there, at the end of the 20th century, I think it was in the 60s, a French worker priest was once asked, why on earth did you get ordained in the late 20th century? What a bizarre, perplexing thing to do. What on earth did you do it for? And he said, I got ordained in order to stop the rumor of God disappearing from the face of this earth. And as you talk, I hear somebody who approves of the rumor of God being around. I, I tend to think it's true. You are unsure. I think people like us can often agree, however, that that rumor of God, it, that the world is probably better with that rumor than without it. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> yes. There's, there's, there's a dark side of the moon that we haven't spoken about. But the question yes. about Erasmus, Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched. That was a thought, yes. wasn't it? Yes. Uh, and Luther laid the, laid the egg that Tyndall hatched. So let's take the three of them. And they certainly made a brilliant and successful attempt to completely <laughs> disrupt, revolutionize, and turn on its head all that was theologically and philosophically happening in the West at that time. So they were connected. And um, Tyndall was very excited uh, that he might meet Erasmus when he went to Cambridge, but he didn't, but very excited by Erasmus's go for the Greek. And everybody at that time was rocked and impressed by Luther, this, this quite extraordinary impact, impact he had, um, and so on. So yes, the, whether it's chicken, egg, egg, chicken, I have no idea. But people tend to come out of their time, and then they shape their time. We all come out of our time. Some of us then go on to shape it. And uh, Tyndall, both, he came out of that. All I would say, not against that, but as a, as a back to square one thing, is he did from the, if we are to believe him, and I would never not believe Tyndall, 
uh, that when he was a boy, he was fascinated by the idea of the Bible in English because the a Saxon king had translated bits of the Bible into English, and it struck him, and he wanted to do that. Just like when he went to the fair, Newton got the prism at the country fair, and he saw the light, and that struck him. And away he went, into optics. So, it's a, it's a very good question, chicken and egg. It's a very good question, and I've got no answer. <laughs> Final question that's come in uh, for, for you, Jane. Should Tyndall be made a saint? What does that mean? Um, um, well, Frank Muir once said the definition of a saint is a dead sinner who's been dug up and edited. <laughs> <laughs> Should Tyndale be remembered, admired, um, emulated? Yes, in all kinds of ways, mm. I think. Um, should we pray to him or uh, have, uh, I mean, it depends what you mean by a saint. Mm. So, but could let's put it another way. He ought to be reclaimed more. I mean, Melvin has said culturally he's been forgotten. Uh, others took his place. Even when the Great Bible came out, his, his name and his portrait's completely missing. And in a sense, that's emblematic perhaps of what's happened, that he has become... Oh, Tyndall's coming home now. He's coming home now. Due to I, you. No, 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 please no. don't. No, please no, don't say that. No, it, no, no, absolutely not. I, no, I, I can't, I have to reject that. It's not mm. true in the slightest. And scholars started in the mid 19th century, and there's been a steady build from scholars here and in America and in Holland and so on. He's, 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 he, he, he isn't because there's not a flashness about him. It isn't as easy to bring forth. I think he doesn't need to be a saint. I mm. think he's as good as he is. Yes. I'm not sure that he would have liked to be a saint, would he, given his... <laughs> yes. I think he'd rather we read the Bible than made him a saint. Yeah, yeah, yes, indeed. I think we should teach Tyndall's English as a second language in our schools. Mm. It is eight o'clock, and I want, to, I want to end, if I may, with something I just found um, a couple of days ago. Uh, by chance, it was in the Poetry Island Review of, of five years ago, and it's written by a poet called Neil Curry, who happened to go to the castle where you were talking about, you filmed his imprisonment, Bill Vorder. Uh, and he wrote this, he just called it to William Tyndale. In the beginning was the word, but the words, variously, were Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, not to mention Aramaic, and that, as you saw it, was the problem. Why, you wanted to know, should not the husbandman who driveth his plough sing them out loud in the fields, or the weaver warble them as he works at his shuttle? As I write this to you in late September 2010, I wonder how often next year it'll be acknowledged that great swathes of the authorised version had been cribbed directly from you. In one of his more frosty seasons, Thomas More described your work as the most pestiferous and pernicious poison. And I suspect that Lancelot Andrews and his committee men will get all the credit for the apple of his eye, for a land flowing with milk and honey and the salt of the earth. Arrested in Antwerp and found guilty of heresy, you were sentenced to be burned at the stake. 
and only at the last minute did the hangman, as an act of mercy, step up to tighten the cord and garret you before he lit the fire. Oh yes, blessed are the merciful, for they shall, how did you put it? I forget. We have been immersed in an exploration of a quite truly remarkable man with two remarkable people. And I want to thank on your behalf both Melvin Bragg and Jane Williams for bringing both their learning, their passion, and their insight to a wonderful evening. Thank you so much indeed. Thank you.